England makes Cologne a rich trading city. This episode shows us how this came about. Cologne in about the year 1178. Gerhard Unmarze was in a hurry. He had an important appointment. Gerhard Unmarze came from a family that had already been in the service of the Cologne Archbishop for some time, the so-called ministerials. Many of these ministerials had risen from humble servants of the city lord of Cologne to powerful and influential officials who took over sovereign tasks in the city on behalf of the archbishop, and thus had come to money and power. In 1169, Gerhard Unmarze succeeded in obtaining the lucrative position of an archbishop's tax collector by paying the archbishop a considerable sum of money. The year 1169 was also the year in which the dispute began and Gerhard Unmarze would soon become a witness to it. Gerhard quickened his steps. Fortunately, he didn't have far to go. His house was directly opposite the newly built palace of the archbishop in the same street that we know today as Am Hof in English at the palace, located directly south of Cologne Cathedral. Even from outside, he could hear the voices. Flemish representatives had traveled to Cologne to complain about the harassment that the city was currently imposing on merchants from Flanders. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as a kind of European microcosm. In this podcast you can listen as the city grows from the Romans up until our present time. In this episode, we talk about a real economic war that Cologne waged in the 12th century. Who had the power on the Rhine, or rather, who controlled the waterway and who controlled the transit on the Rhine, how and in what way. What the whole thing had to do with England, and why had this made the Flemish merchants so angry? The talk was about the real economic war of Cologne against Flanders, which was carried out up to the English royal court. Well, you'll find out right after the intro. England had already been a place from which Cologne imported and exported goods in antiquity. Of course, in the turmoil of the late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, this was no longer the case, but already from 800, Cologne's trade in England intensified enormously. So much so that Cologne did everything in its power to outmaneuver other competitors from mainland Europe and especially from the surrounding region. Already at the end of the 10th century, King Ethelred II, sorry, Anglo-Saxon names are really hard for me to pronounce, even though they're close to Old German, well, this king named Cologne merchants, among others, in his royal documents. How did the Cologne merchants manage to become so important in the Middle Ages for England. To put it simply, geographically, England was ideally situated. From Cologne, deep-sea ships could sail down the Rhine towards the North Sea. From there, they could reach the mouth of the Thames. England was thus a quasi-natural trading partner for Cologne. But transporting goods in the Middle Ages, as well into modern times, was a very hard and therefore expensive undertaking. Capacities for long-distance trade were limited. 
There were neither highways, airplanes, nor big container ships. Transportation over land was arduous, as was transportation by ship, although somewhat easier. But even on a ship, space was limited, and so long-distance traders in the then-known world mostly traded in luxury goods that yielded high profits such as jewelry or spices. Or they traded in goods that were not available in certain regions. For example, do you know a good English wine from the Middle Ages? Of course not, because grapes could hardly thrive there, I mean, thrive to be a good wine. But people in England certainly wanted to drink wine, and wine was also indispensable for the Christian liturgy. It was precisely this gap in the market that the people, the merchants of Cologne, successfully filled. Cologne bought the wine that was produced in large numbers south of Cologne, in the wine-growing regions on the Rhine, Moselle, and in Hesse. This was packed onto ships and then transported to England, and especially to London. Trade with England was of course not the only thing Cologne had to offer in terms of long-distance trade. Cologne had one of the most extensive trade networks in Europe, but we are here for England in this episode, and we want to focus on that. When a ship belonging to a Cologne merchant arrived at the Thames, the cargo was unloaded with wine and in return loaded with wool. The wool was then taken home and Cologne's bustling textile industry used it to make things like cloth. Especially the tanners, dyers and cloth walkers were happy about a constant supply with their business located in the south of the city directly at the Duffesbach Creek. An enormous amount of money could be earned with textile goods back then. With this method, selling wine in England and importing wool and processing it into textiles, the Cologne merchants had something like a money printing machine, so to speak. But not simply unloading and loading was on the agenda here in the English capital for the Cologne long-distance traders. Cologne merchants also sometimes stayed in London permanently, or at least for a longer period of time. Cologne's trade with England was also politically important for the city, just as a little preview, in 1471 the Hanseatic League, an alliance of economically prosperous cities and of which Cologne was an important founding member, would start a war against England. Cologne, on the other hand, as I said a member, a major member of the Hanseatic League, did not want to take part in this. It was too economically intertwined with England that Cologne preferred to be temporarily excluded from the Hanseatic League rather than go to war against its large and centuries-old trading partner. But why has Cologne's excellent relationship with England now led to a dispute with Flemish merchants? Let's play a little mind game here together. Let's follow the rich Cologne Gerhard Unmatze on an unknown day in the year 1178. Do you still know or remember Gerhard Umarze? We covered him and his biography just a few episodes ago. Because of his wealth, I had dubbed him in that episode as the Scrooge McDuck of his time. Listen again with pleasure in episode number 58 if you haven't. We meet Gerhard directly in front of his house, south of the old Cologne Cathedral, so at the top address of the city. Gerhard crosses the already mentioned street Amhof in front of his house and walks toward the entrance of the Archbishop's Palace. Here in 1178, the Archbishop's Palace is brand new, built by Reinhard von Dassel, who had died in 1167. But before we go further into the palace, we take a short 
break. Parallel to the cathedral, the long building of the new Archbishop's Palace stretched down towards the Rhine. The Romanesque palace building had two floors with third directly under the gable roof. Gerhard Unmarzer also walks down along the building towards the Rhine. The Archiepiscopal Palace is protected like a castle. The building, including the cathedral and cathedral monastery, is built like a bulwark. Unlike today, one cannot simply enter the area freely from all sides. Who could blame the Archbishops of Cologne? Everyone in the city knew what had happened to Anno in 1074. Gerhard could have taken the gate to the cathedral courtyard, which was directly opposite of his uh, residential home, but people crowded there, curious to see how the meeting in the palace would turn out, and Gerhard was known as a tax collector and the, as the richest man in town, so he, Gerhard quickened his steps to take the eastern entrance to the cathedral courtyard, where nowadays you can see the Roman port road. Here, fortunately, is no human crowd. Through the so-called Dragon's Gate, a really nice name for an entrance, Gerhard easily gets to the cathedral courtyard. As a ministerial, as an official of the archbishop, he is of course also well known here. Gerhard is offered a familiar view here. To his right is the grand old Romanesque cathedral, once built in the 9th century and expanded over the centuries. Reinhard von Dassel, before his death a few years ago, had added two new towers to the cathedral here. His grave was also located there in the meantime. Right next to the Dragon's Gate, adjacent to the cathedral, is St. Mary at Grados, the collegiate church that Anno had once donated. In the middle was the open square, and to the left of Gerhard, of course, the already mentioned Bishop's Palace. I post some pictures on the homepage with a corresponding historical map and a picture. We are here, as I said, on a not-quite-known day in the year 1178 that might have happened, as I'm going to tell you. Flemish envoys had arrived to complain to the Archbishop of Cologne about the city of Cologne and about the Archbishop himself, who just received them here in an audience. The incumbent of the Cologne Bishop's See at that time was Philip of Heinsberg. Local listeners will recognize from his name affix that, unlike his predecessor in office, Reinhard, who came from the northern part of Germany, Philip came from the local Rhenish nobility. Gerhard was a little late for the audience. His work had held him up and he had some business to take care of beforehand. And when you live so close to the bishop's palace, you tend to forget about punctuality. His colleague Karl von der Salzgasse, so Charles from the Salt Alley, was already there as well. But Gerhard knew that he couldn't get into trouble. Immediately, Gerhard Unmarz's rank was clearly below that of an archbishop, imperial prince and Rhenish nobleman like Philip von of Heinsberg, especially as his unfree official, but de facto, but de facto both needed each other and were on the same level, so to speak. Although Gerhard had only received the lucrative office of a tax collector for Cologne through the will of the archbishop, Philip of Heinsbeck in turn was urgently dependent on the support of his official. As I have often said, the archbishops of Cologne in these times were more than just clergymen sitting around in the cathedral or the adjacent palace. 
They were also responsible for a much larger spiritual area, the Archbishopric of Cologne, up to a lower Rhine to the today's Dutch border like Goch and Kevela, in the west up to some kilometers to Aachen, in the east up to fine to today's <laughs> Oberbergische, I know that's the region most English speakers won't know, it's like 60-200 kilometers in the east of Cologne and south up to far parts of the Eiffel and the Ar Valley in the south, so like 50 kilometers south of Cologne. If you don't know these places, don't worry, as I said, I'll find a map for you, which I will publish on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. But not only that, as Archbishop of Cologne, Philip was also a metropolitan, quasi the head bishop of the bishopric subordinated in the church province of Cologne. These were Liège in today's Belgium, Utrecht in today's Netherlands, then Münster, Osnabrück and Minden. And that was only the spiritual part of his office. The Archbishop of Cologne was also in many parts of the region not only the spiritual but also secular ruler, so like a count or duke in office. Cologne is such an example here. Here the Archbishop in the city, though no longer entirely uncontroversial, is nominally the supreme city ruler exercised through the Collegiate of Magistrates and the High Court, which could pronounce death sentences and that he was the boss of. And not only in Cologne, but in many areas, cities and territories in the Rhineland as well. Sometimes even in areas where he was not even archbishop, so the, the head priest of that region, but only, I'm doing the thing with my things, uh, fingers here, he was only a secular lord there. Very confusing, I know. Middle Ages. But that's how it was before the separation of church and state. Philip of Heinsberg was particularly active as a secular ruler. He had been eyeing the Duchy of Westphalia, located directly northeast of Cologne for some time. Philip of Heinsberg was anxious to break the territory out of the former mighty Duchy of Saxony. This was a territory that Charles the Great had conquered in the years of fighting against the back then still pagan Saxons, until around the year 800. Philip of Heinsberg was to succeed in the year 1180, when the Saxon duke, Henry the Lion, was deprived of his power by Emperor Barbarossa, so Frederick I. By the way, the relationship between the two, Frederick I, also known as Barbarossa, and Henry the Lion, is one of the most exciting stories of the Middle Ages, really, not only from the German Middle Ages, but in general. But unfortunately, out of place here for us in this episode, but if you're really into interesting, exciting battles, friendships, uh, broken, something like Game of Thrones, then I really recommend to you guys to read more or hear more about the relationship between Henry the Lion and Emperor Barbarossa, and where you can do that. At, uh, in the podcast, The History of the Germans by Dirk. He was also the guest of my show once, and I believe the only guest so far here. But I can really um, promote his podcast. Really, it's a great show. Listen to it. Well, and what do you need for such a secular territorial policy that uh, Philip of Heinsberg was doing for Philip of Heinsberg also built and sometimes bought castles, estates and lordships in the Rhineland and Westphalia to, to make his uh, territory and his rule even bigger. That's right, money. 
a lot of money. Gerhard could give it to him as the richest citizen of the city. Gerhard had simply bought the office of tax collector, as I told you in the intro, from the archbishop for a great deal of silver, and this was not to remain the only financial injection that Gerhard would give to Philip of Heinsberg in the course of his 24-year term as Archbishop of Cologne. In short, a Gerhard Unmatz could literally afford to be a little late for an Episcopal audience. It was precisely in this dispute that Philip of Heinsberg did not appear as a cleric, but precisely as a completely secular ruler who pursued the interests of his city, of Cologne. The Flemish envoys made serious accusations. The city of Cologne and its merchants would restrict the free navigation on the Rhine River for their own Flemish merchants. They would simply, the Colones, the Colonians, would simply hinder the ships on their upstream journey on the Rhine. Further than Cologne, they could not sail. And why did the Flemish merchants want to go there? Quite simply, they had the same plan as the Cologne merchants. They diligently bought up wine in neighboring France and sold it in London, then brought English wool back home. Back in Flanders, the local textile industry, which was also flourishing, preceded the wool into products that were in clear competition with Cologne products. Cologne had therefore been grumbling for some time about the direct competition in its neighborhood and then trying to pass the city onwards to sell uh, textile stuff in their direct vicinity. However, with the Rhine as the highway of the Middle Ages in the center of Europe, they, Cologne, had found an effective lever to fleece the competition in other Rhenish locations as well. At that time, as I said, the Rhine had become the transit route for the movement of goods. Even today, by the way, the Rhine is the busiest waterway in Europe. Cologne was of course pleased by its direct location on the Rhine to be affected by the advantages that such location brought. Through the Rhine, one was able to transport Cologne products to large parts of the then known world. But already around the year 1000, people in Cologne came up with the following idea. What if one could not only use the Rhine itself as a trade route, but also use the perfect location on the Rhine, with the city on the Rhine, to tax the passing transit traffic, to fleece it, or even better, to somehow steer the goods transported along the route through the city itself, in other words, preventing ships from continuing their journey and forcing them to stop in Cologne. That would be ideal. Cologne's importance as an already significant trading center in Europe would be increased enormously. In what form what was later called Staple Ride already existed at that time in the second half of the 12th century cannot quite be determined, but it was clear the attempts to direct the flow of goods from the Rhine into the city but also from the land routes around Cologne, that was at least a declared goal in this period even if it cannot be conclusively proven. Because the development was visible in many places, not only in Cologne, the decision-makers in Cologne were not the only ones. The numerous castles that can still be seen along the Rhine today bear witness to the fact that every ruler on the Rhine wanted a piece of pie that was the wealth of trade brought across the Rhine. See of Cologne, Archbishopric of Cologne, Archbishopric of Trier, County of Berg, Hesse, the Palatine, Archbishopric of Mainz, Luxembourg. These were all players who made a lot of money from the Rhine 
and its tributaries in the later, late Middle Ages. Cologne, however, was simply more inventive, or shall we say, more effective, because the geographical conditions usually required ships that passed Cologne to reload into other types, another type of ship. But we'd better deal with that another time, because this episode is primarily about a trade dispute and how England helped with that for Cologne. But in the light of this effort, of the merchants of the city of Cologne and the city ruler Philip of Heinsberg, who cooperated here once again instead of clashing as so often, this conflict with the Flemish long-distance traders must be seen. Let's listen in on how the exchange of blows is going in the Archbishop's palace between the parties after a short break. When Gerhard joins the audience in the bishop's palace, the quarrel is already in full swing. You deny us free navigation on the Rhine. You do not let us sail further south up the Rhine, although Emperor Otto II already gave us this privilege 200 years ago, a privilege that Emperor Henry II and Henry III have also confirmed in turn. Oh, stop it, said the tax collector Karl von der Salzgasse, Gerhard Unmatz's colleague. That only applied to the monastery of St. Bravo in Ghent, but not for all Flemish per se. You are no longer interested in a negotiated settlement with us. You have even sent the emperor after us. You deceived him so much with your false statements that he withdrew his favor from us, from Cologne. We had to pay him a lot of silver to get us back into his favor. That was the Cologne side speaking. Perhaps we should briefly illuminate what that means to withdraw one's favor from someone. It was a tried and tested means of exerting pressure in a system based on estates and feudalism, as it was in the Middle Ages. To withdraw one's favor from someone was a diminution of honor. If the favor was withdrawn, one was not now directly an enemy per se, but favors, respectful dealings, visits, intercessions, or gratitudes were no longer to be expected. In other words, something that was to be avoided at all costs in a time when honor was everything. Despite the archbishop as the city's lord, formerly the emperor was ultimately the supreme feudal lord as the head of the empire, and anyone who, like the inhabitants of Cologne in the last decades, repeatedly resorted to the power and intercession of the emperor in order to push back the power of the archbishop as city lord could not afford such a thing. Without imperial intercession, for example, Cologne would not have been able to expand its city area in 1106, for example, against the will of the Archbishop of Cologne. But as I said, a payment of much silver brought back the Emperor's favor in 1171 in this case. Since in this case the Emperor, so Barbarossa, was the more threatening opponent at the moment, Archbishop of Heinsberg and the citizens of Cologne entered into an alliance of convenience for some time. The city of Cologne wanted to earn money. The archbishop would also have a share in this. At the same time, Philip wants to have a free hand on the Rhine for his territorial policy in Westphalia. Yes, we have appealed to the emperor to make our justified complaint, replied the Flemish um, guest, and he has ordered you to keep the Rhine navigable. After all, the emperor has confirmed that the Rhine is an imperial 
wrote, Gerhard Unmatze now takes the floor. Dear delegates, the emperor can announce what he wants. As early as 953, the great emperor Otto I granted the right of customs to the respective archbishop in office for eternity here in Cologne. This means, therefore, that our esteemed Lord Archbishop may also decide quite freely here on the Rhine who he wants to tax and who not. Archbishop Philip of Heinsberg listened to the conversation in silence. He found it interesting that the Emperor had once again ordered him to arbitrate. After all, he was not an impartial person here. Already in 1169, he had held this role but had only half-heartedly listened to the concerns of the Flemish um, merchants. At that time, he had answered the concerning of the Flemish merchants evasively. This meant that he unspokenly supported the status quo, which meant no further travel upstream on the Rhine from Cologne for Flemish merchants. Thereupon, this economic war had broken out. In addition to withdrawing the favor of the emperor, which had been regained in the meantime through a lot of silver, Emperor Frederick I, also known as Barbarossa, had dealt the merchants of Cologne a further sensitive financial blow. The emperor had established a customs station at Kaiserswerth in the middle of the Rhine, the place where once the Archbishop of Cologne, Anno, kidnapped the young, later Emperor Henry IV, was the closest place to the north of Cologne that was in direct possession of the emperor and not enfiefed to any vassal. To protect this customs post, Barbarossa built a local castle complex, the remains of which you can walk freely to this day. Everyone then had understood the customs station in Kaiserswerth, north of Cologne, was supposed, was supposed to harm Cologne's long distance traders to England, especially the long-distance traders with England. Because over the Rhine, one came into the North Sea, as I said, and from there into the mouth of the Thames to get to London. The nice side effect for the Emperor with a custom station directly north of Cologne? A ringing cash register. Because this section of the Rhine was naturally considered extremely lucrative. Why did the Emperor do this? He probably wanted to put a stop to the territorial ambitions of the Archbishop of Cologne, the largest city in the empire, with its population, had allied itself in unusual harmony with the supreme rule of the city, the Archbishop of Cologne. This strengthened Philip of Heinsberg's position in the empire immensely, his territorial policy, that is, the expansion of direct power within the northeast corner of the empire, or northwest corner of the empire in this case. The emperor wanted to prevent this, and saw in Flanders an ideal political counterweight to Cologne as it was in the middle between Cologne and the North Sea. Politically, the emperor's decision to establish a customs station here in Kaiserswerth was to take revenge in the medium term, even have serious consequence for the continuity of the Hohenstaufen dynasty to which Emperor Frederick Barbarossa I belonged, but more about that another time in due course. So what do you do when your own emperor annoys you with his economic policy? You look for foreign partners, and so after what feels like endless explanations by me, we return to England. In the English King Henry II, the Cologne long-distance traders had gained a good friend. As I said, Cologne is always flexible when it comes to loyalty. In the process, Cologne managed to do something that no German city had ever done before. 
successfully pursuing international politics with foreign powers. Cologne merchants addressed the English royal court and presented petitions, and they did so with success. King Henry II of England, a great friend of Cologne, held out the prospect of far-reaching privileges. On July 1st, 1175, in an earlier episode, I think, I believe I said 1157, that's not true, it's 1175, he, Henry II, issued a document stating that all his officials and subjects were instructed to protect the belongings of all Cologne's citizens, merchants and men, no matter where they were in his domain, so far beyond the city of London. But it did not stop there. The following year, 1176, two more royal charters followed. In the first, Henry II decreed that Cologne merchants were allowed to sell their wine at the same price as the French privileged merchants. Henry II himself was of French nobility and preferred to speak French at his court, or rather was not even fluent in English. Why? Too long story. If you're interested, have a look at what happened to England in 1066. The second document of the year 1176 also had uh, really some significance. There it was decreed that, but wait a minute, why should I tell you? Let's let the English king's document speak for itself that I had translated out of Latin. Let's uh, quote it here. <laughs> quote, Henry, by the grace of God, King of England and Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, Count of Anjou sends greetings to his judges, vice-counts, and all his servants in England. I charge you to God, keep and protect people and citizens of Cologne as my own subjects and friends, together with all their goods, their merchandise and possessions. Therefore, you shall not do injustice or harm to their house in London, nor to their goods, nor to their merchandise, nor to what else belongs to them, nor allow such to happen to them, because they are my faithful subjects and put themselves and all their possessions under my care and protection and therefore have a safe peace to live according to their right custom and you must not impose on them any new duties or regulations which they do not owe and are not in the habit of making. And if anyone maliciously violates them, you shall give them full justice without delay. End quote. I don't have to explain these privileges to you. It's pretty clear what King Henry II had proclaimed here. These privileges, <laughs> difficult word for me to say, for Cologne were a really big thing. Neither the Flemish or any other German merchants enjoyed these advantages. In gratitude for this, even nowadays, King Henry II, the English King Henry II, is also depicted as a historical figure on Cologne's tall hot tower. Besides royal robe, including crown and scepter in his right hand, the statue holds in his left hand some grapes, of course in allusion to the wine that the people of Cologne sold to him and his subjects. Why did the English king do this? Of course, big politics was again at the center here. Henry II, as mentioned, with large possessions in France, feared an alliance of France, or the Kingdom of France, with the empire of Emperor Barbarossa. Cologne, which at this stage was in opposition to imperial policy, came in handy. Then, however, an economic perspective was really the decisive factor. 
due to its uh, location as an island in northwest of Europe, England was dependent on imports. All this came to the dismay of the Flemish long-distance merchants who also traded with wine in England, and also to the displeasure of Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, who had tried to weaken the Cologne merchants and the city itself, as I already told you. The Flemish long-distance traders could hardly keep up with these competitive advantages on the Thames, despite the Rhine toll station for the people of Cologne right on their doorstep at Kaiserswerth. But that's not to say that Flanders had fallen behind. Quite the opposite. Yes, people just found other ways there to get wealth or to serve other markets. Seas like Ghent or Bruges. It's called Brugge in German. I have no idea how to pronounce it in English. But these cities show this prosperity until today with the historically rich and beautiful townscape. And in terms of textile industry, Flanders could also dominate for centuries in Europe. For centuries, as I said, Flanders was and still is one of the wealthiest and most prosperous regions in Europe up until today. Of course, there's no longer any dispute between Flanders and Cologne over sheep's wool. However, this round in the 1170s went to Cologne. The merchants from the Rhine had successfully expanded their trading position in London and up the Rhine from Cologne. The competition from Flanders still could not. On the contrary, from Cologne, Flemish ships could not go any further still, and in England, they were hopelessly inferior to the Cologne merchants due to the numerous privileges that the Cologne merchants now enjoyed there. So, you might ask, how did they find a solution? We'll find out after a little break. And here we are again, in 1178, in the palace of the Archbishop of Cologne, not far from the old cathedral. With Archbishop Philipp of Heinsberg, the two tax collectors Gerhard Unmarze and Karl von der Salzgasse, and the angry delegation from Ghent in Flanders. Not only do you have special privileges in England now, the, de the delegation leader from Flanders continues, Cologne continues to block free navigation on the Rhine for us, and once again you, Archbishop Philip of Heinsberg, are supposed to mediate as a neutral arbiter between us and the cities you rule? That's not fair. My dear friends from Ghent, the Archbishop of Cologne spoke, we could now argue until doomsday which weighs more, the right of the emperor to see the Rhine as a free waterway or our old city right? that we can tax this waterway as we wish. As Otto I once conferred on my predecessor Bruno in perpetuity. I have the following suggestion. What was it like before the quarrel broke out? Were you able to sail up the Rhine, even beyond Cologne? The Ghent delegation replied, of course we were able to pass the Rhine Cologne before 1169, However, we had to make a forced stop and could not proceed directly upon reaching the city. The greedy eyes and hands of the Cologne merchants naturally wanted to snatch our goods from us for cheap money, but now we are not even allowed to pass Cologne. The Cologne city lord and his tax collectors were not provoked by this remark. There we have the solution, spoke Philip of Heinsberg. Let's just consort as we did before this crawl 
and all will be well. But Emperor Barbarossa only recently emphasized that the Rhine was a free navigable waterway, the Flemish merchants insisted. Dear delegation, this decision is a compromise. We respect your ancient rights, namely the use of the Rhine. You, in turn, respect our ancestral rights that we, as a city, may conduct customs and duties and regulations on our section of the Rhine, the Archbishop answered. The Archbishop of Cologne had acted wisely here, Gerhard Unmatzer thought. He had again neither named nor cleared up the controversial issue that the city of Cologne was increasingly anxious to direct the traffic of goods through Cologne and to have them stored for several days, the so-called staple right. Apparently, the Flemish merchants accepted this arbitration of the Archbishop. From then on, there was no more dispute. It seems that they had accepted the compromise. What other choice did they have? The narrative structure was very complex in this episode. I understand that. I tried to bring some structure into this highly complex topic by accompanying Gerd Umarze with this little mind game here. But yes, so the English king helped significantly that Cologne prospered incredibly economically. Wine in exchange for wool. That was a big business at the time and also for the next centuries. The English trade was to remain incredibly important with great political decisions. For example, around the year 1200, when a throne dispute broke out in the empire and Cologne would support an English candidate. But we'll discover that another time. Richard the Lionheart, for example, would also give Cologne merchants even more exemptions from taxes in 1194. This naturally drew the envy of up-and-coming German trading cities such as Hamburg and Lübeck. Here, however, a Cologne solution was found. In 1280, it was agreed that the former Cologne trading post would act jointly as a German trading post. It is one of the historical milestones of the German Hanseatic League. Trade with England really comes to a standstill with Napoleon then at the end of the 18th century. The French emperor imposed a continental blockade against the enemy Great Britain. This brings Cologne's centuries-long trade with England to an abrupt and then permanent halt. Even after the end of Napoleon, things would never be the same. The ravages of time had moved on too much for that in the city of Cologne as well. In one of the documents we quoted here in this episode by King Henry II, there was the talk of a Cologne house in London. Only in the middle of the 19th century, this trading house, the Stahlhof in German or Steelyard in English, is abandoned and sold. Since then, there is the train station Cannon Street in London. To the topic of the Stahlhof, the Steelyard, we come perhaps another time separately in another episode. So. Let's slowly come to an end. What served me as uh, literature for this episode? I found the document of King Henry II in the book Sources for the History of the City of Cologne, Volume 1 by Wolfgang Rose and Lars Wirtler. Of course, the book is in German and I just translated the title for you guys into English. Then there's another German book called The Illustrated History, Economical History of Cologne, I believe it is called by uh, several authors, but the author of the medieval chapter is written by Christian Hillen. 
And of course, the standard work Cologne in the High Middle Ages by Hugo Stehkemper and Karl Dietmar served me as a great uh, literature basis. Much information about the personalities, the biographies or overriding topics such as Rhine customs in the Middle Ages and territorial politics was offered to me by entries of the online portal Rheinische Geschichte, so Rhenish history, whose articles were all written by experts in historical science with numerous references to literature and sources for each entry. Thanks also to those who tipped me for this episode via PayPal. Thanks to Sabine. Marcel, Simon, and Marion. Thank you so much. What else did this episode show us? How volatile the composition of the political will was within the municipality of Cologne. Cologne's history in the Middle Ages is sometimes summarized in such a way that the citizenry and the archbishop became increasingly estranged and enemies. Here, however, is once again an example that when both sides can profit from each other, one gladly and very uncomplicatedly supports each other, even against the emperor. In the next episode, the volatile character is maintained for when, in 1106, the city's population in hasty haste due to the fear of King Henry V dug new ditches and earthen ramps. This was due to the imminent threat. But it was not proper for such a large city to have permanent provisional fortifications. A great city wall must be built, one made of stone, the largest city wall in Europe. A continuous city wall that would also include areas that could not be included in the city area back in 1106, like the rich monasteries of St. Gerion, St. Pantaleon and St. Severin. And that's where the archbishop and the city population will get in each other's way enormously but unexpected help will come for the citizens of Cologne. The emperor himself, here the enemy in this episode, Frederick Barbarossa, will come to the aid for the people of Cologne. Rate and follow, please, and follow me also on social media. Until next time, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>